And one more time, turn your Bibles to Hosea. We're going to look at these last two chapters tonight as we conclude this series of sermons through this Old Testament prophet, Hosea. I'm going to read chapter 13, and then we'll pick up with 14 when we reach it in just a few minutes. Again, God's inerrant, infallible word, the only trustworthy source that we have for faith and life. When Ephraim spoke, remember Ephraim, Israel, Ephraim, Ephraim's the largest tribe in Israel, Israel, Ephraim. It's used interchangeably. When Ephraim spoke, speaking of the northern kingdom, I might add, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he incurred guilt and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves cast metal images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the people who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud and like dew, which soon disappears, like chaff, which is blown away from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Yet I've been the Lord, your God, since the land of Egypt, for you were not to know any God except me, for there is no savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, drought, as they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And as they became satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie and wait by the wayside. I will confront them like a bear deprived of her cubs. And I will tear open their chests. I will also devour them there there like a lioness, as a wild animal would tear them to pieces. It is to your own destruction, Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where then is your king, that he might save you and all your cities? And your judges, to whom you said, Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The guilt of Ephraim is wrapped up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come on him. He is not a wise son. For it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Death, where are your thorns? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come. The wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will dry up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Samaria will pay the penalty for her guilt, 
because she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their children will be slaughtered, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Father, thank you for this, your word, and we ask now that you bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't doubt that many of you, if not all of you, perhaps some of you youngest may not have, but the adults have, you've heard people say things like, I believe that all religions have some truth in them. I believe, they may say it even so bold as this, I believe all roads, all religious roads lead to the same place. So you just have to pick the one that best fits you, that you can be most satisfied with. I've heard people say, I, I, I prefer to think that there's a little truth in all religions. Well, I mean, let's be honest. I remember years ago studying the, the leading 20th century theologian, Karl Barth, the father of what we call today neo-orthodoxy. One of Barth's conclusions was at least some people understand him this way, most people probably understand him this way, is that he believed ultimately in universalism, that is, that all will be saved. And I remember talking to a professor of mine about this, and he said, uh, have you ever had a, a close friend or a, a loved one to die? I said, yes. He said, were they believers? And I said, not, not all of them. And I had a dunk, an uncle that I thought of immediately, and he said, wouldn't you like to believe that he's in heaven? And I said, well, yes, I would like to believe that, but based on the scriptures, I can't. He said, ah, but that's the difference between you and Karl Barth. The scriptures Now, he wasn't supporting Karl Barth, don't get me wrong. He was just trying to help me, as a young whippersnapper, understand the psychology of universalism and how some people can land at that position of, well, yeah, I'd love to believe that. And so a lot of people live there. I prefer to think there's a little truth in all religions, and so... Uh, and so I, I think that everything's going to work out okay. Uh, we read Luke chapter 13. Perhaps it's clearer in Matthew chapter 7. Let me read you just a couple of verses there. It's a different occasion. It's the same point that our Lord is making, but he says it a little bit differently. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. 
the narrow way and the broad way. That's what the Bible teaches. Not every way. There's a broad way and there's a narrow way. From the very beginning of the Bible, you have this two-way motif. It's so prominent that in the early uh, church, post-apostolic period, there was a little uh, a booklet, a little uh, a, a handbook for the church put together. It's called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve. And the Didache begins, the first major section of the Didache is concerning the two ways. And it gives you, here are the two ways that men approach God. There's the broad way, there's the narrow way. And then it goes into other sections where they deal with the sacraments and the elders of the church. And it's more or less a little compendium of like a confession of faith and a book of church order all crammed together in, in, in one little book. The narrow way and broad way. I always thought, you know, every once in a while you see a church that's located on Broadway. And doggone it, if they don't call themselves Broadway, you know, Presbyterian or Broadway Baptist. I'm like, don't do that. You know, just pick another name. Jesus, you know, Jesus Church. You know, broad is just not the right way. Narrow is. Now let me say something about the narrow, only a few find it. Well, in comparison to the broad way, which seems to satisfy a host of people, it's true today, isn't it? I mean, look, I can't right now because the leaves are on the tree. In the wintertime, I do this occasionally and say, I mean, look out there, I've already seen more cars pass in a snap of the finger than are parked on our parking lot tonight. It's obvious that many follow the broad path. Compared to that, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a little snapshot, few find the narrow way. But we know, based on the scripture, that those few in the snapshots of life add up to be numbers beyond counting. So don't let every, anybody ever come at you and say, oh, you just believe a few people, a few little select people, just a few little people just like you are going to go to heaven. Don't let them do that to you. Just pull the scripture out. Show them. No, we believe that multitudes beyond counting. But what that means is multitudes beyond counting are not going to be in the presence of God also. And that's the sad part of that story. As we conclude Hosea, we see the very same lesson that Jesus paints for us in Luke 13 and Matthew chapter 7. It's the narrow way, God's way, or it's the broad way, man's way. And this is, this is just what the proverb says, isn't it? Chapter 14, there's a way which seems right to a person, but that way leads to death. So we don't want what's right in our own eyes. Remember what, what, what Israel got for following what was right in their own eyes? Go read the book of Judges. There was a way that seemed right to them, 
There was no king in Israel at that time. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Aren't you glad that the church has a king, King Jesus, and we know what's right? Now, the question is, do we do it? And do we pray regularly for the Lord, the Spirit of God, to help us do that which we know is right? Israel had followed the path of personal pleasure, decadence, indulgence, and God called her off that path to a path of holiness, a path of commitment, or, if you want just a single word, a a life of faith. And we've seen that all the way through Hosea. All these warnings were designed to bring the people to repentance. We'll come back to that in chapter 14. First, the broad way brings judgment. That's what chapter 13 is all all about. And, of course, this started way back in chapter 1 with Gomer. Gomer personified Israel. Gomer was a hedonist. Gomer was self-indulgent. Gomer was all about pleasure. She was remembered, defined as a prostitute, a harlot. And she wasn't just a harlot for hire. She was a harlot just because she loved to sin. That makes her an idolater. Now here's one we don't pay attention to much. Do you notice how much was said about the problem with Ephraim, Israel, is idolatry? They've cast metal images. They've made from their silver the work of craftsmen. And they even go so far, did you notice there in verse 2 of chapter 13, they say of them... That is, of the metal images that they've made, the idols, let the people who sacrifice kiss the calves. It's remarkable. But notice then in verse 3, therefore they will be like the morning cloud. And like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor, like smoke from a chimney. How long does that last? Any of that is just, it's here one moment, as the book of James says, it's here one moment, it's gone the next. It's fleeting. And he's saying saying here, idolatry, self-indulgence is fleeting. It's a fleeting pleasure. It's a fleeting act on the part of a so-called worshiper. Let me be more pointed. Paul says it this way, therefore treat the part of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality. In other words, put to death sexual immorality. Don't do it. Therefore treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. You say, what's that got to do with anything? Well, let me finish reading it. Which is idolatry? That was not a question mark. That's the answer. All those things, sexual immorality, physical pleasures that are against God, passion, evil desire, greed even, is idolatry. In other words, we put those things 
where only God deserves to be. We let those things take God's place. Verses 1 through 3 point out the heinous nature of Israel's sin. Verse 6 then, God's, uh, verse 4 rather, he says, Yet I've been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. So now he comes back. He's done this already. We, we paid attention to this before, didn't we? He's gone back to Exodus chapter 20 and to the prologue before the Ten Commandments are given. I'm the Lord your God. I delivered you out of Egypt. And here he does it again. I'm the only savior you have. And what's the main problem? Where, have, where has Israel gone whoring with the surrounding nations? And they've not trusted God. God said, you asked for a king, I gave you a king. And it's a, been a problem for you ever since. Why has it been a problem ever since? Because he was their king. These, these human kings took his place. That's the problem with human kings. That was the problem, folks, with the moral majority movement. Is that we let the right party, the right way of thinking politically, take the place of only God can save a people. We decided that the right politics, the right political party, the right people in the Supreme Court, the right people in office would save us. And men never save men. Only God can save men. And God says, there is no savior besides me in verse 4. I cared for you in the wilderness. Now he walks them through the wilderness in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. Okay, I took care of you. I gave you everything you need. And then you became satisfied. You became proud. You forgot me. So, what am I going to do? I'm going to be like a lion. I'm going to lie in wait. I'm going to devour you. I'm going to, I'm going to rip you to shreds. It's to your own destruction, Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Folks, listen. Do you understand? In the midst of the pleasure for disobedience, when we disobey God in order to have these fleeting moments of pleasure, whatever they are, name it, pick it. Whatever your pleasure is. When we choose to disobey God to pursue our own path of pleasure, God says it is to your own destruction that you are against me, against your help. Now let me ask you something. Is anything, anything, any person, any job, any hobby, any amount of money worth God being your enemy. And yet we do it, don't we? God says, don't presume upon my covenant faithfulness. I will be faithful to my people. It's your own destruction, Israel. Where then is your king that he might save you in all your cities and your judges 
The guilt of Ephraim is wrapped up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come on him. He's not a wise son, for it's not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. And then verse that's quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Death, where's your thorns? Sheol, where's your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. That's got to be one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Compassion will be hidden from my sight. God's saying, no compassion. You say, but I thought God was in the business of forgiving sin. He is. But he's also in the business of redeeming a people out of their sin. And he then blesses the people he redeems out of their sin. And he punishes the people who presume upon his forgiveness. And notice how bad this is. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come. In other words, Israel, you're, 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 you're affluent. You're, you're doing well. You're flourishing among the reeds. But there's going to come an east wind. And who's going to send that east wind? The Lord. The wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness. And his fountain will become dry and his spring will dry up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Who's the east wind? That's Assyria. And notice that God's in control of that. Just like the, just like the storm that came up on the sea. Remember when Jonah was running? If you've read Jonah lately or if you remember way back when I preached through Jonah chapter 1 Jonah's running he's on the ship he goes down in the, in the lower parts and he's asleep storm's raging up there but why, why the storm what happened chapter 1 tells us that God here's the literal rendering you may remember God threw a storm out on the, on the, on the sea Just like a bowling ball coming across the sea and that ship, the ship is is the pins. And it's just getting beat to death out there. We've seen it in John. We see Jesus telling the sea to be still and it was quiet. God's in control. He's in control of everything. We love it, don't we? We love it when God's in in control of the nice and good things. But we really struggle with God being in control of the things that are destructive and bad. And yet he's a God who brings judgment on people who are proud and turn their backs on him. That can be individuals, that can be nations. And look how, dis- how terrible this chapter ends as the summary of this, of this judgment comes out. Their children will be slaughtered. And their pregnant women will be ripped open. 
That's the judgment that will come. Well, so God has said this is what's going to happen. This will be the result of your harlotry. And we shouldn't be surprised. We're told in Hebrews that our God is a consuming fire. Israel's demise, the judgment that sent them out into exile was irremediable as for their nationhood. And that was like so much of Old Testament uh, happenings. It was a type or it was that which was going to come spiritually on his people then and forevermore. But chapter 14 is for those who have ears to hear. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God, for you've stumbled because of your wrongdoing. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all guilt and receive us graciously so that we may present the fruit of our lips. That second point in the outline. The narrow way brings healing. The broad way brings destruction. Unthinkable destruction as we've rehearsed it. But the narrow way brings healing. And the narrow way begins with repentance. Return, Israel. That's repentance. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn back to me, God says. Take words with you. Return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all guilt. And receive us graciously. Isn't that beautiful? Take away our guilt. Receive us graciously. So that, here's the purpose of repentance. So that we may present the fruit of our lips. Repentance always involves fruit. We've seen that over and over. Jesus illustrated it wonderfully in Luke chapter 13. When he said repent or perish. And then he gave him the parable of the tree. The tree that wasn't bearing fruit. And he said, dig it up, tear it out, throw it away. The dresser said, let's keep it another year. Let me cultivate it. Let me fertilize it. Let me dig around it. And if it doesn't bear fruit after that, yes, we'll destroy it. The point is, repentance always is accompanied by fruit. The fruit of repentance. And here, the first step is the fruit of our lips. Now, notice the contrast, by the way. 14.2, so that we may present the fruit of our lips as a genuine repentance to the Lord. Be gracious to us. Forgive us. Contrast that back to chapter 13, verse 2. They made idols, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say, let the people who sacrifice kiss the lips. The fruit of the lips of the sinner is loving, if you will, showing affection for their their self-indulgence, their idolatry. And the fruit of repentance, genuine repentance, is declaring, I'm guilty. I need your grace, O Lord. And then faith comes in. Notice verse 3. Not just repentance, but repentance always has faith with it. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God to the work of our hands. That's back to the work of the craftsman in chapter 13. We won't say our God to the work of our hands for you, the orphan, finds 
in you the orphan finds mercy. They compare themselves to an orphan here. And you're the God who, who brings mercy to those who need it and who can't do anything for themselves. So Israel, you need to repent. You need to admit that you can't do anything for yourself. You need to admit that you need me and me alone. I'm the only one who can save you. And by the way, you've got to believe in me, not Assyria. Faith and repentance. And notice God's response to faith and repentance. It's not the ripping apart of pregnant women. It's not the dashing of infants on rocks. I, verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely because my anger has turned away from them. I will be, remember earlier, because of their sin, they were going to be like the dew in the morning and just go away, evaporate. And now God, God says, I'll be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. I used to let the morning glories grow in our garden in South Carolina. We had a lovely garden in the backyard. And I would plant two or three rows of corn. And morning glories, you know, take over. They're almost at like kudzu, only prettier. But I would let them grow in the garden so they grow up the corn and bloom. And they were so beautiful. They don't hinder the corn's growth. But then as soon as the corn was gone, I pulled them up by the roots and I burned those rascals. And Jesus here, the Lord is saying, I'm going to be like dew to, the, to Israel. I'm going to cause you to blossom like the lily, the morning lily. And he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. He will, his shoots will sprout. His majesty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. His fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Notice his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon, his majesty like the olive tree. Plenteous, grain in plenty, blossoms and fame like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant juniper. From me comes your fruit. God's the one. Hosea represented God. He went to Gomer. He provided for her. Remember all the way back to the first couple of chapters? He went out and he tried his best. He went after her. He supplied everything she needed. And she would not. She was like the, like, the, like the chicks that Jesus addressed in Luke 13. How I would have taken you under my wings like a hen, mother hen and her chicks, but you would not. Now he's telling them, but if you will, 
Whoever is wise, whoever has ears to hear, whoever has eyes to see, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. But God doesn't want anybody thinking wrongly that, well, okay, since God said everything's going to be okay, it'll just be okay. We're all in. And he finishes with that, that but. But wrongdoers will stumble. Wrongdoers stumble in the ways of the Lord. Wrongdoers think God, God will just let us go. He'll, he'll, he'll just wink. And God's saying here, I won't. I won't flinch. If you don't repent, you will perish. But if you do repent, if you do trust me and not all the things of this world, if you do take pleasure in me and not all the things of this world, I will cause you to bloom like the lilies. I'll cause you to grow and be a strong tree planted by the waters. I'll cause you to be a beautiful tree in the midst of this world. Faith and repentance. So, we're going to kiss the idols, or we're going to kiss the sun. Remember those wonderful words in Psalm 2? Kiss the sun, lest he grow angry. That's the contrast here. We will always either be affectionate, loving, and making love with idols, or we will be affectionate and loving the one true God. You cannot serve God and mammon, Jesus said. That's the book of Hosea, the two ways. Hosea. Loving a harlot, persevering with her, doing for her, and calling her to repentance. The righteous will follow the ways of the Lord, for they are right. But wrongdoers will stumble in them. So are you righteous or are you wrongdoers? Are you in the narrow way or are you in the broad way? Are you Hosea or are you Gomer? Father, those are sobering questions. And we have seen this brought back to us over and over. And we think what a, what a wonderful God you are. You took 14 chapters and you didn't have to. You didn't need to. I would have written this in, 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 in two chapters. Hosea and Gomer in one, and your warnings and call to repentance in two, but you, you, you went on and on and on with your people just like you do. And we're glad you're, you're patient with us. May we not leave this place tonight having worn out your patience.
being reminded of Paul's words, today is the day of salvation. We're reminded of that, that truth throughout the word that no man has promised another breath. That today is the day to believe and have life in Christ. Grant us repentance that we might turn from our sin, our wicked ways, and turn to God. The one true God through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We ask you to do that for us in his wonderful name. Amen.